Before we begin today's show, a quick message. Throughout this year, we've brought you stories on everything from conversations with the first Cajun in space to stories about Louisiana's ancient artifacts. On Louisiana Considered, we strive to tell stories that are diverse and thought-provoking. So if you like our show, you can donate now at wrkf.org or wwno.org. Thanks. Now here's the show. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, it's been more than a century and a half since slavery was abolished in the U.S. However, legal cases involving formerly enslaved people as property still continue to set precedents cited in modern civil suits across the U.S. We'll hear about a project working to change that. That's just ahead on Louisiana Considered. But first, in the spring of 2021, there were 2,500 teacher vacancies across Louisiana. And by the fall of the next year, there are still over 1,200. Across the state, there have been multiple efforts to increase teacher hiring with everything from bringing educators out of retirement to quick turnaround teacher training programs. Here to tell us more about how districts are addressing this shortage is Marie Fazio, who covers Jefferson Parish for the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We also have with us Baton Rouge High School science teacher Megan Hall. Megan was awarded the District Teacher of the Year Award after her first year at Arlington Preparatory School. Megan, thank you for being here. Thank you. So, Marie, can you just give us a little bit of the background? You've been reporting on this at the start of the year. How many teacher vacancies were there in Jefferson Parish alone, and what were the the known causes of this shortage? Sure. So in July, there were 211 vacancies, um, and that number has improved. So the district now has about 186 vacancies, which is actually only 0.05% of their overall teacher population. Um, So this is not a new issue. For years, enrollment in traditional teacher programs has dropped, and that was kind of exacerbated during the pandemic. So education experts cite low pay, poor working conditions, and a general cultural shift in towards teaching as some of the reasons that the profession hasn't seen as much of an interest in recent years. And I heard one of the solutions has been to pull some former teachers out of retirement. It kind of reminds us of nurses, retired nurses going back to work during COVID. Can you tell me a little bit about the specific recruitment program for retired educators and whether or not they can keep retirement benefits when coming back to work? Yeah, that's a great comparison. Um, so this te- this program in Jefferson Parish formalizes a process that was already in place to allow retired teachers to return to the classroom. The teachers would be hired part-time to teach grades 4 through 12, and they wouldn't receive benefits from the district like uh, sick pay, but they would still receive full retirement pay with restrictions on essentially their, their new salary. Um, So with a few exceptions, most teachers who retired after 2010 would have a 25% cap on earnings. And if they retired before 2010, they would have no restrictions on earnings. And in Jefferson Parish, they're asking for teachers with a bachelor's degree or higher, a valid teacher certification, and um, those who have retired within the past seven years and are somewhat familiar with technology used in the classroom, like J-Campus and Google Classroom and Chromebooks and, you know, all that kind of tech. Of course, we don't just need retired teachers coming back to work. We need new teachers as well. And the shortage of educators isn't just happening in Jefferson Parish, but all over the state. So we have with us Megan. Let's go to you. What were you doing before you became a teacher? And, And tell us how did you decide to make that career switch? Well, in 2009, I got my bachelor's degree in science and biology. 
And um, I've been an electrician. I've worked in hospitals. I've worked at the banks. I have also sold cars. Not my best move. Uh, I've also worked at Home Depot for many years. And um, I got to the point where I found myself in a relationship that mattered a lot to me. And I did not have an income that would sustain us. And I decided to do something more. So I uh, looked into alternative opportunities to use my bachelor's degree and become a teacher. I literally Googled up uh, how to become a teacher in Louisiana. And I teach popped up and uh, I went through the program and I began in 2021 and I was hired on in Baton Rouge in January of 2022. And I've been in the field ever since. And honestly, it was the best move that I could have made. I understand iTeach is one of these shorter training programs that might make it relatively convenient for somebody to get trained up as a teacher. Can you tell me about how long that took and how difficult, how intensive, and what you thought of it coming out of it? Well, iTeach gives you the opportunity to kind of create your own schedule. I decided in November of 2021 that I was making the change from being a student and a worker to being uh, I teach prepared and I started it in November and by the end of December I had worked through the first four chapters that are prerequisites towards hiring Um, and then I began interviewing December just right after Christmas for uh, positions as a field teacher Um, I was hired January 4th of 2022, and I was in the classroom on January 18th of 2022. Now, once you are in the classroom, you begin a mentee program where you have a mentor who looks over what you do. They give you feedback, provides you uh, descriptions, and and discuss with you how to to be better in what you do. And um, that process lasts two full semesters at school. And then uh, following that, you take your final practice exam and you become certified in your field of study. So I received my certification as a full licensed teacher in March of 2023. We're speaking with Megan Hall, high school science teacher in Baton Rouge, and Marie Fazio, reporter with the Times Pick Unwarns Advocate, about the statewide teacher shortage. Are there any other actions you're seeing the district taking to addressing the shortage of teachers other than bringing some of them out of retirement? Bringing teachers out of retirement is definitely looked at by the district as kind of a Band-Aid short-term solution. Um, they also offer a handful of other programs. They're, they're one of several districts that have it, um, an in-house certification program for teachers or um, those with a four-year degree who want to go into teaching. Um, and then they also have another strategy of allowing people who are at least 25 years old with an associate's degree to become a teacher. So they're working with community colleges in the area. So Megan, let's go back to you. What inspired you to be a teacher? I know there's a lot of outflow of teachers quitting because of working conditions, pay, things like that. So knowing that that's out there, what made you think, no, actually, I want to be a teacher? I had honestly always told myself, I will never, ever go be a teacher. There is absolutely no way I could sit in a classroom with a bunch of children and teenagers where all they try to make sense of the world. That is not going to happen. I can't put up with these attitudes. And then I was like, you know, this would probably be the best thing monetarily for me and my family. And so I made the move with the risk that maybe I wouldn't actually enjoy it. And then I got in here and I realized 
hey, I, this actually matters. This matters not only to the students that I am interacting with, but it actually matters for their futures. It matters to me because I'm making a mark and an impact on these kids' lives. I'm letting them see like the, the reality that they live in. I'm giving them the opportunity to open their eyes, possibly for the first time in their life, and actually see what is happening in the world. And that means something. That has value. It doesn't just have the monetary value of now I'm owning my first home that I have ever owned in my life, but it also has just the the incalculable value of of leaving something of yourself behind. So that move, that change, you know, I had always searched for that purpose. And I had never found it any retail job or any sales job or any customer service job because I wasn't actually able to serve people in the way that I am serving these students. Marie, as a reporting on this, what are some ways that schools are navigating this shortage? Are classes bigger? Are there side effects of a teacher shortage that you know teachers and parents are seeing in the schools there? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times schools are making do with the number of teachers they have by kind of shifting things around and um, having teachers cover classes during their planning period. So there is a bit of a struggle there in terms of adding responsibility and workload. I have heard also that some schools are shifting classes virtually where, you know, you'll have the students in the classroom and and adults supervising them, but they'll all be taking um, the course online if they can't find a teacher to fill that particular vacancy. And Megan, you were recognized with the District Teacher of the Year Award in your first year of teaching at this school. Can you tell us what your experience was like with that? And what do you think it says that a first-year teacher could win that prestigious award? I think that, uh, you know, it signals that people who come in with a passion and a purpose can make a big impact in a very short amount of time. My my choice to come to teaching has definitely impacted the students around me. And I feel like everyone needs to look at their neighbor, needs to look at your friend in your car, and ask yourselves, can I make a change and impact people for the better? Teaching is that opportunity. Megan Hall, high school science teacher in Baton Rouge, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And Marie Fazio, a reporter for the Science Pick New Orleans Advocate. Thank you for your time as well. Thank you. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Slavery was abolished more than a century and a half ago, as we all know here in the U.S., but its echoes remain many times embedded in the very structure of society, systems, and infrastructure in some unsurprising venues and other times in some surprising places. Believe it or not, legal cases involving slaves, cases involving slaves as property, are cited as perfectly valid law in modern-day civil cases in several states across the U.S., These slave cases are used to boost or support modern-day suits in the courts today. One project is seeking to document this vestige of slavery that still exists in our legal system and to prompt efforts to get that changed. With me today are Justin Simard and Audria Daco. Justin is director of the Citing Slavery Project and assistant professor at Michigan State College of Law. Justin, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Audria is an editor with the Citing Slavery Project. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. So people might be surprised to learn that our legal system relies to some extent on slave cases from well into the past. Is this unexpected? I mean, 
After all, our, our civil law system relies upon cases from decades or centuries ago even when the world, our customs, and our values were in some cases incredibly different. Justin, what's your impression on that? Is that a surprise? Well, it surprised me um, because when lawyers use precedent, what they want to do is analogize to it, right? They want to say, this case that I'm handling now is like this case in the past. And we sort of think that these cases involving enslaved people are pretty distinctive from cases you're dealing with today because they involve humans who are treated as property. And those cases have both legal and dignitary harms when you cite them. The legal harms are because enslaved people were kind of strange kind of property, they led to cases that have these strange rules. That's one issue. A second issue is that these cases were often decided in ways not designed to come to the best legal outcome, but to protect slavery. And they rely on white supremacy and racist language and other things that make them less good precedent. And then on the dignitary side, every time a judge or a lawyer cites one of these cases, he or she is continuing the dehumanization that happened to that enslaved person in the 19th century. Because the only way it makes sense to cite a case involving the enslaved person's property is if we continue in some way to treat that person's property. So it surprised me because I didn't see how these cases could provide valid legal holdings or decisions today. Justin, you mentioned strange rules because of law that's dealing with humans as property. How does that end up being applicable to cases these days? Like, how does that change how things would be interpreted rather than citing a case where it's not a person who was treated like that? So one example is that there's this doctrine in the law of property called adverse possession. And you might be familiar with it, sort of squatter's rights. So the idea is if someone essentially abandons their land and you live on it and make improvements for long enough, that land becomes yours. The idea is we don't want people abandoning property, we want property to be improved, et cetera. Well, in the late 18th and early 19th century, that doctrine is expanded out to personal property. So that's stuff you can carry, right? Anything besides real estate. And the reason it was expanded out was because Southern slave owners were worried about what would happen if ownership of enslaved people was uncertain. Now, the rules for adverse possession is that you have to do it openly and notoriously. And so adverse possession, possession of a person in general has to be kind of be open to notorious. You can't hide them in a drawer. Um, but now that doctrine is used for things like art or jewelry, and oftentimes the case where someone buys a painting from a thief, um, doesn't know it was a stolen painting, and then later the original owner finds out, oh, you have my painting. Um, and wants to get it back. And they say, no, I've adversely possessed it. I own it. You can't take it from me. And a lot of commentators have said that doesn't make any sense because you don't possess a painting or a watch or jewelry openly and notoriously. But if you think back to why this doctrine got established, it was because in the context of slavery, when it got expanded to the broader area of law, it sort of doesn't make sense anymore. Now, these commentators have known law is bad, but haven't known why. And I think Understanding those roots in slavery is one one way to understand that. So that's just one example of a property law doctor that you would think these judges who cite these cases, oftentimes they're not citing the cases in which enslaved people were involved originally. They're citing cases that stem from them. So some of these judges might not even know they're relying on slave cases. We're speaking with Justin Simard and Audrea Daco. They're with the Citing Slavery Project, an effort to document legal cases about slavery in the U.S., cases that are still cited as good law in our modern-day legal system. Adria, tell me about the extent of these cases here in Louisiana. 
Um, so it is quite prevalent. Uh, just to note that Louisiana, we have not finished documenting every single case. Um, we've found a total of 3,227 cases. Of those, I've gone through 1,248. And of those cases, there's 1,001 that directly deal with slavery. Audrea, what are some characteristic examples from Louisiana that really illustrate how these cases prop up our legal system? Ah, man. One of the things that I've been personally working on with this is what's helping it be propped up in the legal system is a lot of these cases are being directly cited in briefs to different courts when different attorneys are appealing their cases. Um, So on the ones that I found, there's 148 of them that attorneys are using today that directly cites a case involving an enslaved person to sort of appeal whatever the issue was that they lost on previously. Um, There was two cases specifically that dealt with enslaved persons that Louisiana Civil Code actually cites directly to. So one of the cases dealt with a defendant that was convicted of importing enslaved persons to Louisiana in violation of a statute. And there's a Louisiana Civil Code that deals with nullity of contracts and in the code itself actually cites that case. A lot of cases in Louisiana, what I've found were issues of around retribution. So kind of just to give a little bit of clarity of what that means is uh, retribution is kind of an issue with sale in itself. So if an individual was to sell something to someone and the item itself was defective, under certain circumstances, you'd be able to rescind that sale and get your money back. So there was an enslaved person that was sold and some way or another, they were considered to be infected with like a retributory disease. So a lot of cases come from that too, that are still currently cited. Yeah, and so these cases, this is not just something that happened before the civil rights movement. The citations are continuing to be cited by judges and lawyers today. So some recent cases that I've found in Louisiana involve wills of trust, evidence, uh, civil procedures, so the rules of you know how you file and sue, evidence, remedies, so it's like damages, uh, dram shop liability, which is relating to alcohol, like bars and uh, regulation of bars and liquor stores. Yeah, so it really is just so influential and so spread. Nationwide, we estimate that 18% of all published cases are within two steps of a slave case. So either cite one directly or cite a case that cites one. So to narrow down its influence in one area is very difficult because the influence is so is so broad. Hmm. Are these cases still relevant? Is it possible to do present-day law without citing these cases? That's a tough, it's a tough question. Um, I think because they're so influential and and so widespread, I don't think it's something where we can just stop citing these cases tomorrow. So I think one thing we really want judges and lawyers to do is to acknowledge and recognize this inheritance. Eliminating that inheritance is sort of, uh, you know, it's like trying to eliminate uh, the influence of slavery in other areas. So we've shown, you know, other historians and scholars have shown Slavery continues to influence everything from university system to wealth distribution to criminal law to government, right? And so I think really fully addressing these cases is like really fully addressing racism or something, right? This is not a short-term project. Tell me about your project's efforts to find alternatives to citing these cases. Yeah, so... You know, one of the challenges is because these cases have been so influential, trying to find rules that aren't influenced by slavery is very difficult. Um, But I think it is possible. um, And there are two sort of ways of going about it. One is to look for other cases that establish the same rules that don't involve enslaved people. Another way is for judges just to 
not rely on the cases and just say, I'm going to follow this rule because I think it's a good rule. And that's not how judging usually works. Is that how law usually works? We're very grounded in precedent. But I think it's very important for judges to recognize that the reason we use precedent is because we're deferring to the reasoning and decision-making of earlier judges. And if that decision-making is based on white supremacy, if it's based on racism, if it's based on slavery, I think it's pretty suspect. And so I, I think it makes sense for judges and lawyers to rethink how they're using these cases. Hmm. And what changes have you seen so far as a result of your research? So one thing uh, that's been very exciting is that we were able to convince the Blue Book, which is the citation manual that all lawyers use. Um, it's kind of like the lawyer version of the Chicago manual style or the MLA. And we've convinced them to add a rule that says, if you are citing a case involving a slave person, you have to acknowledge that in a parenthetical. And so that's a way to encourage judges and lawyers and scholars to admit that they're using these cases and hopefully force them to acknowledge them. Because if you have that parenthetical that says this case involved an enslaved person, it's probably going to mean that the other parties in the case, the lawyers, the judge, or the other scholars are going to read that case a little more carefully. Audria, when we talk about citing legal cases, it's kind of a, a non-human thing. We're talking about cases very broadly. But these cases do have some very specific narratives about things that happened to actual people. What are some examples of some of the specific details in these slave cases from well into the past? So, yeah, just to preface, a lot of this is very horrifying um, reading these cases um, because there's just the humanity of these individuals is completely stripped away. So I have hundreds of examples off the top of my head. I can think of two specific examples. So talking about retribution, there was a specific case of a of a plaintiff looking to um to rescind the sale of a woman who was pregnant, an enslaved woman who was pregnant. And rather than be sold to the defendant, she actually went to the sea and drowned herself. Um, and they labeled her as an insane person and allowed the plaintiff to rescind the sale, uh, which was absolutely horrifying. And in that case, and, and quite a few, actually, the, one of the bigger issues that I, I think is pretty, pretty traumatizing is these individuals are described in very, very intimate details um, inside and out, but oftentimes they don't mention their name. So you just hear of this individual, it'll be quote unquote property enslaved person, and it will tell you everything from head to toe of this individual, every illness that they had, but they'll never ever state the person's name. You still, you will get it, but it's very few and far between. Um, another case was one of the more alarming ones I found not too long ago a plaintiff brought a suit against two officers in New Orleans over the value of enslaved persons who were murdered by the police. Um, they were beaten to death with clubs, almost mangled, because the officers were ordered to, quote, suppress unlawful assemblages of slaves in cabarets and dram shops looking for slaves that were attempting to escape. Um, so they actually brutally murdered these enslaved persons, and the plaintiff was looking to recover for this. And the court didn't allow it because municipalities couldn't be held liable for their actions under the law. Interesting. And that's sort of something that we still say in law, isn't it? Yeah, it's very similar to sort of like a qualified immunity claim is what was very interesting to me. And that case specifically has been cited 42 times. So like we said, it's just it's so ingrained in the legal system. And if the issue itself isn't specifically named, for example, like qualified immunity, it's still you can see sort of a lot of the influences in that. Do you think that these cases could eventually disappear from that blue manual and in that case, do you think they'd be forgotten about? In an ideal world, yes. 
um, you know, I, I think it's possible in an ideal world, but I'm not sure I will live to see that world. <laughs> Justin Smart is director of the Citing Slavery Project, and Adria Daco is an editor with the Citing Slavery Project. Justin, Adria, thank you for your time today. Thank, thank you so, so much for having us. That's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. Our managing producer is Alana Shriver, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.